Good to have you this morning. We're going to do a couple things different this morning. Um, last week we were almost exclusively in the Old Testament. This week we're going to be almost exclusively in the New Testament. And typically when we have Communion Sunday, we'll either do it before or after the sermon. And this week we're going to actually do it during the sermon as a part of what God's going to teach us. So um, if, you, if this really works and doing this really works, you can let me know. I always love to hear good feedback at rdunn at fefc.com. And if it doesn't work, send your comments to gpinkner at fefc.com because we want to hear your feedback. Okay, so... Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in the New Testament. And Julie, you have my Bible back there. If you could grab it, that'd be great. If you can hear me, that'd be super. Um, before we start, though, let me show you these pictures. Now, these pictures came off of CNN, so I'm sorry that they're not better, but you know what? They've got lots of money. They should make better pictures than this, but here they are. Uh, if we'll dim the lights just a little bit. Um, this guy on the left, this is under CNN International Untold Stories of the World. The guy on the left is a neo-Nazi from Warsaw, Poland. Uh, in his early 30s, belonged to a group, he doesn't have his head shaved, but the skinheads, and uh, he and his wife, Ola, uh, grew up uh, in Warsaw and just became uh, haters of the Jews uh, to the point that he described them as the, the plague and the scourge of the world. That's the guy on the left. Now, the guy on the right, which you can't really see well, and I'm sorry about that, but he's a, if you can kind of recognize, he's got his prayer shawl on. He has uh, all the elements of Jewish prayer and, and reading of the Torah, and there's, he's, he's deeply immersed in uh, his expression of his Jewish faith. Now, here's the shocker. It's the same guy. It's the same guy. Because uh, Paolo, Apollo and uh, Ola, his wife, when they were in the early 30s, realized that even though they were neo-Nazis, they actually were Jewish. And it kind of rocked their world a little bit. Because what happened in Poland, because of the level of the persecution, particularly in Warsaw, you know, the Warsaw Ghetto, the level of the persecution, a number of Jewish families changed their names, changed their family history of record, what they would say, their documents. And only now, some third generation, second generation away from World War II are realizing that they actually are Jewish. And when uh, Paolo and Ola realized that they were Jewish, and that was their identity, it changed the way they saw themselves. It changed the way they saw their world. It changed the way they related to everybody and everything and changed their understanding of life. Because if you change identities, really change identities, it will change how you view everything. Let me show you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, <clears throat> he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are not who you were if you're in Christ. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And Paul says, let me explain this. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That means drawing the world back to his heart. The Father was opening his heart to the world and bringing the world back to him through, in Christ, not counting their trespasses, their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. And Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, if I were to talk with you and I was just meeting you and I say, well, tell me what you do, you'd say, well, I'm a 
I'm a lawyer, I'm a teacher, I'm a student, I'm an athlete. And, and that would be a good a description of what you do. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's not who you are. Who you are is the open heart of God to the world. You have been entrusted with the gospel of grace. You have been embraced by the gospel of grace, and in you dwells this Christ who is desiring to take all of your gifts and your experiences and who you are and your failings and everything and use that to express the open heart of the Father to the world. You say, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a mom, I'm a brother, I'm a daughter. Now, those are your family relationships, and they're very important, but they're not who you are. Who you are is the open heart of God the Father to the world. You say, well, I'm Caucasian, I'm Latino, I'm African-American, I'm Asian. Now, that's your racial and cultural heritage. That's important, too. It says a lot about you and your experiences in your life, and it's critical to celebrate and enjoy, but that's not who you are. You are the open heart of the Father for the world. You say, yeah, but I'm a sinner, and I fail, and I don't feel like I've got very much to offer to the world, and I don't have kind of gifts that maybe people would value or publicly value. And so, no, 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 you're misunderstanding. Yes, you are a sinner, and yes, you do fail, and yes, you do struggle, and yes, you do have things that you're embarrassed or or overwhelmed by or whatever the case may be. But in all of that, even in that, your true identity is the open heart of God to the world. And so when we're in the closing the series, Making Room for One More, we are talking about how now, bringing it home, how is it that we take this open heart of God in us and make it available, accessible, relevant, practical, meaningful, personal to the world around us. And we went through this, this was kind of the flow of what we went through. We said God opens his heart to his people and God's people open their hearts to him. That's being reconciled to him. And then we said God's people open their hearts to one another. They experience his heart together. And we talked about community and relationships. We all need a sense of community. We can't be who we are fully if we're not learning to do that together in community. And then finally, God's people open his heart to the world. Outsiders, strangers, orphans, widows, the poor, the lost. And this morning, we're going to focus after the communion on what does that look like and who are these people we're trying to reach and try to look at a vision of how Jesus did this so that we might understand the Jesus that resides within us. But before we do, I do want to make just mention that we start back in the book of Hebrews chapter 8 next week. And you may say, okay, the Making Room for One More series is over. Now we're going back into Hebrews. We're getting more theology and more... All theology, well done, becomes very, very practical. That's why... The epistles, the letters in the New Testament are written first with foundational theology that always works itself out in relationships, in values, in moral choices, in value choices, in in priorities. It, It always works that way. For instance, let me show you where the book of Hebrews is headed. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. After going through Hebrews 10, which we'll get to, which is all about opening our hearts to God, to one another, and to the world... And then in after chapter 12, emphasizing that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and run with endurance the race set before us, Hebrews 13, 1 through 3, says this, let brotherly love continue. Well, what is that? Open your hearts to one another. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angel, un, angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Now, it, 
it's, it's exactly what we're talking about. The end game of the Christ we're learning in Hebrews is that we would turn, experience that together, and then offer it to the world around us through biblical hospitality, embracing people with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even more so, Hebrews does this for us. Last week, I talked about humanity's false gods, money, sex, and power, and how these things rightly understood and experienced and, and, and lived in the way in which God intended for his purposes, for his glory, open up to us the passion and the pleasure and the power of who God is in our lives. When they become the it, when they become the focus, when they become where they should not be as more a wrongful place in our lives, they just lead us deeper into self-absorbed idolatry. And my point was last week, these are the things that close our hearts down. And these are the battlegrounds where we keep open hearts so that we can live in biblical hospitality. The book of Hebrews is going to talk about the very same thing. Look in thir- chapter 13, verses 4 through 6, after talking about hospitality. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous unless you become a new creation in Christ in which all of that is forgiven and cleansed. But you, do, you have to take seriously sexuality. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. We did a whole series on the economics of contentment, that right worship of God is learning to enjoy money as it was meant to be enjoyed and not grasped and worshipped. And then listen to this. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? You don't have to be afraid of the power of man or others or structures or governments or anyone in your life. And so, again, it's about keeping our hearts open so they might be open to the world and not allowing these things, as Hebrews 12, the sin that so easily entangles us to close our hearts down, but to meet those places in our hearts. And we all struggle with money, sex, and power in different degrees, different ways, to meet that with his embrace of grace and bring that to the world. So here's the deal. We, uh, every moment, surrender our thoughts and our resources and our lives to worship something. And the call of Hebrews will call us to worship our God, but in doing so, this will call us back to lives of biblical hospitality. That's the end game. If it doesn't flesh out into us, into our world, we have not fully experienced the grace we were meant to experience. I do want to say one more thing before I move to communion. Uh, in your bulletin, you'll find that Alan Ramsey, our middle sc- head of our student ministries and also our middle school pastor, is doing series in t- a couple of the community groups on helping your teenagers with their media choices. And I really want to encourage you to move towards that if you're parents. And I also want to thank Alan, not only for teaching in the community groups, but for teaching our kids. My son and I had a long conversation today, and we have to, yesterday we have a lot of them about media choices because it's tough. And I had to say, I'm sorry, son. I am sorry that you live in a world and a culture which is designed to make money off of you by getting you to watch movies that are about these things. And I'm sorry I can't hardly find anything at the theater to send you to. This is a tough issue. And if you don't think, if you're a parent and you don't understand that people are trying to make enormous amounts of money off of your kids using money, sex, and power as the draw, you are naive about the world in which you live. We have a whole generation who's going to live with closed hearts if we do not address these issues well. The gospel is about living open-hearted in the world, and Jesus knew how hard it would be. And so he gave us a way to remember who he is and who we are. He gave us a way to come back to him. He gave us a way to lift our eyes up. You know, maybe you don't have this problem, 
But I find that I spend tons of emotional energy on the common and have very little emotional energy for the majestic. I worry a lot of time about how my middle school basketball teams are doing and how we can shoot better, which is really something I should be concerned about. I want to point that out. But I spend lots of time on that and then sometimes go into communion. It's just like, well, here's another little church thingy. I want to make sure I make a good prayer and do this right. Or spend enormous amount of emotional energy on how many men are on the field at the end of the game. <laughs> right? Enormous. We know. We know. We're pastors. You hate to preach after an SEC lost. An SEC loss brings a big orange fog into the room. So I'm going to ask that you be given the grace to lift your vision to this table. Because this is the hospitality of God. This is the embrace of grace. This is him saying to you, I know your heart. I know your thoughts. I know your actions. And I love you because of me. And I'm going to make you into me. And I'm going to dwell with you. And one day, you're going to come dwell with me. And all these distractions and deceptions and seductions will be gone. And it's just going to be us. And then you're really going to know my pleasure and my purpose and my power. That's what this table is. This is an invitation to your Father's table. Let's pray about that. Lord, I pray as we come this morning, you would lift our vision to the majestic. Forgive us for our commonness, for our distractions, for our such investment in this stuff that's going away and forgetting to invest in that which will never fail. And bring us to the table out of your grace. Lord, if we're dealing with guilt and shame and sin and condemnation. If we are in Christ, we are a new creature. That is gone. And if you can forget about it, so can we. If you can, if you can name us as clean, then so can we. And Lord, for anyone who doesn't know you this morning, may this be a part of how you draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, uh, uh, elders and spouses will come to these tables, and uh, they'll be there for you, and then we'll have ushers who will come to the row, and they'll ask you to stand, and then we'll ask you to come down, and you'll take the bread and dip it into the juice, and then you can go back to your seat and uh, take, the, take the communion. Uh, this table is open to you, regardless of church denomination or affiliation. It is not open to anyone who has not come to a place of loving and knowing their Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. You can be a sinner and struggling and join me at the table, because me too. But if you have not opened your heart to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the table is not yet for you. We hope someday it will be. So you're welcome to go through the line or sit where you are, however that's best, and that's not going to be awkward for us. I hope it's not awkward for you. We're glad you're here. Uh, if you have small children and they've not come to a saving knowledge of Christ, haven't really said, yeah, I know Christ is my Savior, then we just ask that bring them by the table, and, but not take communion, and they can use this to, to learn from things. Uh, a couple of other things for you. In the back, there's a table that I think I've got right. It's gluten-free and egg-free communion, all right? I don't have fat-free. You've got to do that on your own time, okay? But it's as free as we can get it, okay? So if you have dietary restrictions, that's available back in the back. And, and if there's other things we can do to help, let us know. Um, but as you come to this table, remember that this is because of Jesus saying, to his disciples at what we call the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. And he said, when he offered the Passover meal, when you take this bread, remember, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when you drink of this cup, as often as you drink of it, remember, this is the new covenant by my blood 
When you drink of it, remember me. So remember who he is this morning. Because once you remember who he is, you can begin to remember who you are, and then we can talk about the rest of the sermon, about how we take that into the world in which we live. So if the elders and their spouses, if you'll make your way to the tables, please. Ushers, if you'll make your way to the ends of the rows. And we'll have worship provided. You can sing. You can reflect silently, whatever you'd like to do. Okay, so what we're going to do for the last, uh, the rest of the teaching to kind of set up the, the closing of this four-week series, to bring it into some practical, now what will I do with this? We're going to look at four stories of Jesus and the gospel. Now, each one of them is easily a sermon in itself, so we're not going to dig as much into all the details and the background as we normally would do. We're going to more look for them kind of a pattern, a way of watching, one, how Jesus approaches, how Jesus approaches those in need of grace. Two, we're going to look and see how the religious leaders of the day respond to him. If you remember, we started our series looking at the story of what we call the prodigal son and the elder brother who was totally, uh, just absolutely disgusted with the father choosing to embrace the younger sinful son. In every story, there's some elder brother types. And then also, just to make sure you continue to be aware of this, the difference between a closed heart and an open heart, every one of these stories is about power. And a couple of them have sex and money thrown in, too, because in the absence of God being worshipped, one of those three will get your heart. And so we're going to watch and see how Jesus reaches into each of those places. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the first story. is Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. It's a rich man named Zacchaeus who's come to a place in life as the song we sang earlier, there must be more than this. There's got to be more than this. So let's acknowledge what's in the room before we go there. If you grew up in vacation Bible school or Sunday school, as soon as I get to the sycamore tree, that wee little man with sea thing is going to kick in, right? Okay? So let's just get that out of our heads right away. Um, I'm not going to sing. I can't sing, and I wouldn't sing it anyway. Never liked the song to begin with. Um, If you didn't grow up in church, you hadn't missed a thing, okay? I tell you on this song. It's a lot of good choruses. This wee little man with sea doesn't get it with me. All right, so... Luke chapter 19, um, Jesus has just entered Jericho, and we pick it up with verse 2. And there was a man named Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and was rich. Let's just point this, he was very rich, and being a tax collector is how you made money off the backs uh, by oppressing people. He was be, the Jews were used by the Romans to oppress their own people to make money. And if you're a chief tax collector, that means you had the pyramid scheme going, so you were making money off the people who were making money off of oppressing the people. Verses 3 and 4, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. He wanted, there's something, he's seeking something that's missing. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a tree to see him. For he was about, I'm just trying to help you. He's about to pass that way in verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And Jesus said, I must stay at your house today. It seems like Zacchaeus has come looking for Jesus. I assure you, Jesus has come looking for Zacchaeus. He's going to talk about that in just a moment. Of course, the, the rulers and the Pharisees were like, oh, great, there he goes again. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. To which Jesus would say, duh, that's why I'm here, right? I mean, that's, the way, that's who Jesus is because we're all sinners in need of him. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord. I mean, he is, Zacchaeus is immediately overwhelmed by the fact that Jesus wants to come and be in his house. 
Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. He's just ready. He is overwhelmed that Jesus has pursued him. Verses 9 to 10, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Do you think there's anyone in your life who's accumulated wealth and status and stuff and they have clawed and scraped and pushed and compromised? They've done everything necessary to get there and at this point they're thinking, there's got to be something more than this. There must be must have a lot of us around like that because every year in professional sports, the salary has to go up and go up and go up no matter how much you make. And if you go to NBA, like an NBA basketball game, it's like they play basketball in between the circus. Why? Because people have to constantly be entertained by more stuff, more stuff. That is our culture. More, more, more. Entertain me. Give me. And there are so many people who surround us who are saying there has got to be something more than this. And Jesus, were he physically present, would go looking for those people and offer them something else, grace, something substantial, something with real purpose and real power and real pleasure. And don't you think if he's put himself inside of you, he would use you to do that? That he would move you in such a way that if there's someone sitting around you who's like, there's got to be something more than this, that he would give you the heart and the vision to compassionately begin to care for that person with the hope of embracing them with his grace. The second one, a a shamed and ashamed woman in John chapter 8. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 8. And here is a woman who's come to the place, as many people do, of feeling... I am unworthy of love. In the absence of the knowledge of Jesus, she will continue to live her life as one unworthy. We'll pick up in verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in, their, in the midst, they said to him, Now you've got to stop right there. First of all, Jesus is teaching at the temple. He's in the midst of teaching at the temple. The Pharisees have caught this woman, and they've probably grabbed her very much from the very being caught, drug her out in the street, thrown a sheet or something around her, and drug her to the temple, probably angrily, probably as bullies, with no compassion, no concern, no care for her whatsoever, and drug her into this space. And here's what they said. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. They're just using her. They're just using her. That's what she, that's, she's, she's being used. Verse 6b, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Don't you wonder what he wrote? When I get to heaven, that's one of my top questions. What were you writing? Here's what I think. This is extra biblical. Don't go anywhere with this. All right. Here's what I think he wrote. The names of some of the women they lusted after are more likely the names of some of them standing in the circle who had committed adultery also. But whatever he wrote, it was powerful. 
When they heard what he said, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. She is vulnerable. She is guilty. She is standing in absolute shame. She has all but been spat upon by the Pharisees. And here is the rabbi of rabbis in the temple. She was probably trembling, scared out of her mind. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Lord. Her heart's totally surrendered. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus responded, if you're you're new to fellowship, we talk about how we deal with sin in our lives and the lives of others. For the Christian, it's conviction without condemnation and compassion without compromise. This is what Jesus gives. She says, Lord, and he's, grace, grace. My compassion, there's no no condemnation. But don't go do this sin more. I love you, but don't, this is not right. And, And her life is changed. Because Jesus has waited on her. He's been there. He knew she was coming. He knew what was being set up. He was at the temple, so they would have to bring her to the temple. Everything is set up to put him on display. He has brought grace into her life, and it has changed who she is. He has borne God the Father's open heart into her shame. Turn to Mark chapter 5. We have two more stories. These are kind of intertwined, so one's a story within a story, so I'm going to tell the first story and then come back to the second one. Mark uh, chapter 5, we look at a, helpful, a helpless, powerful man. It's a very powerful man who's gotten to a place of helplessness. His name is Jairus, and he comes to Jesus basically pleading, please help, I am so afraid. Mark chapter 5, please help, I am so afraid. Let's start with verse 22. Verse 22. Uh, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Now, rulers of the synagogue, this is a very powerful religious man. He's got a lot of influence, a lot at his disposal. We learn later that everybody is gathered around his house because of his daughter's sickness. All the religious leaders, the religious who's who is all there. And he's seeing him. He fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Please help me. I am desperate. I am afraid. I'm going to lose my little girl. And all this power and all this status and all these people I can gather don't do a thing to help me when life has broken my heart. And he went with him. Now, there's a delay because there's something else going on we'll talk about in a moment. During the delay, the daughter dies. And so people from the house come out and look at verse uh, 35, verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said to Jairus, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? It's pointless, it's over, why give any moment energy to this, it's over. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear only believe. Jesus has, has stepped into this man's greatest fear and said, there is faith that overcomes fear. Jesus has invaded this man with his presence and his power. And now he's going to take James and John and Peter, and they're going to go to the man's house. When they get there, they're going to say, it's over. What are you doing here? You're late. Give it up. Go home. It's over. She's dead. And Jesus says, she's just asleep. Here's what happens. Look in verse 40. The response of all the religious community gathered around Jairus' house was, and they laughed at him. 
But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And this little girl became a bearer of Christ's grace, and her father, Jairus, got it. He understood. He believed, and he became a bearer of Christ's grace. Have you ever noticed that life's a little bit hard? And do you have friends, or maybe you, for whom it just seems downright cruel? A loss of a child? Financial ruin? Abandonment by a spouse? Debilitating illnesses? For some, it just seems life, it just... It's just overwhelmingly hard. Some of you fight against depression or bipolar disorder or, or um, some of you may struggle with, with just health issues that we don't even know, just debilitating. You're just always sick no matter what you do, no matter what happens. And here is a Jesus who embraces with grace someone who is just absolutely helpless and afraid. And don't you think there's a few people around you like that? at work, in your dorm, in your neighborhood, where you go and eat your meals, if you eat out a lot, there's someone around you to whom Christ could be shared and his embrace of grace be given. I'm not talking about going up and saying, here's three things you need to know about the Bible. I'm talking about building a relationship where there's a conversation where someone starts to ask you, is there anything in there that will help me? Because they're afraid. By the way, everybody's afraid. It's just a matter of whether or not you meet faith. Faith meets fear. And then the last story, which is actually a part of this story, which is a suffering soul. A woman who said in her, in her own mind, in her own words, really, if only Jesus within reach, was within reach. Because what happens is between Jesus moving towards Jairus' house through this thick crowd of people that were just all over him and trying to get him to feed him or heal him or do something for him, between that and actually getting to Jairus' house... Uh, This incident happens. So if you have your Bibles, again, turn to Mark chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 25. And this is on the way to Jairus' house. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better but rather grew worse. Just total despair and suffering. Now, a couple things to recognize. She used to have money and resources. She was living a normal life. And she lost everything trying to get well. What else we notice is it doesn't seem like there's any family member helping her out. She's probably a beggar in the streets. And if she's issue of blood that never stops, she's ceremonially unclean, so she's completely cut off from her religious community. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. If I could just get within reach of Jesus. And he, And then what happens is then she touches the garment and immediately she's made well. Immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Two things. One, he knew. Jesus is involving everyone, including her, in the process now because he already knows. And, and, And the second thing of this is, 
I guarantee you Jesus walked by her close enough to be touched. Jesus changed his path in order for her to be able to touch. He put himself within reach. And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Are you kidding me? We're just trying to do crowd control, and you're worried about who touched you? You've got Jairus, who is a ruler of the synagogue, whose daughter is dead because we keep taking all, we're, is dying, and we keep taking all this time. This is an important guy. We've got to get there. You've got to get moving. You can't stop. For, keep going, Jesus. What do you mean? What are we going to do? And he looked around to see who had done it. In verse 33, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Don't you imagine there are in the world the poor and the orphan and the widow and the lost and the discouraged and the despairing and the sick and the hopeless whose lives would be changed were we to simply begin to walk in such a way that they might touch Jesus in us, that they might be embraced by his grace. You see, here's what I think. I think our world is filled with these people. I think Knoxville is filled. I think your neighborhood is filled with these people. I think your workplace and your dorm is filled with these people. People who say there has got to be more than this. There has got to be more than this. Chasing, chasing, chasing the big brass ring only to find out it's actually in your nose and you're being pulled by it. Don't you know there are people sitting around you who are just feel so unworthy of love? They have been used they had been abused. Some of it was their fault. Some of it wasn't their fault. But at the end of the day, they just don't feel worthy. And so they medicate. They go into idolatry. They do all kinds of things to try to survive. Don't you know there's people around you who are saying, I'm just so afraid. They're covering it. And unless you get close enough to them for them to talk about it, you'll never know it. But they're scared out of their minds that their marriage is over, that their kids are never going to love them well that they're going to lose this person or they're never going to recover from having lost this person. And there's so many people in our world and around our world, if only Jesus was within reach. Well, biblical hospitality, the call to embrace people with the grace of Jesus, says to us that we are God-bearers. We are Christ-carriers in our world. And if we have the vision and the heart and the willingness just to make room for one more, just one more, not a hundred more, not a dozen more, not three more, one more person that you might pursue because they need the embrace of grace, that you might wait for, and knowing if you just kind of wait in this place, their path's going to come across, that you might walk intentionally towards them, or that you might just enter into their place of fear and speak faith. That's what this series is about. That's who we must become individually and corporately as a church. We cannot come to the box and believe that it's about the box and what we do here, the building, and what happens here, and not recognize it's about the heart of Jesus moving into the world, first as we come together to worship him, then as we grow together in sharing his heart, and then as we take that heart into all the places we are in the world. In a moment, we're going to take a moment and just ask, I'm going to ask you if you'll pray 
that God will open your eyes to just one more person. We're not trying to talk about trying to get people to go to church. God will sort that out when the time comes. And if they go somewhere else to church, that is wonderful. We're not trying to get more people in the church. We are trying to get more people with their Jesus' arms around them and in the kingdom. Many of you are in Young Life, Navigators, Campus Crusade on our campuses. You're in the school system. You're teaching. You're a businessman, a businesswoman. You're a homemaker. You have a, your sphere, your sphere, some of you are deeply involved already. Ask for to see with God's eyes. Some of you have not made that step. Some of you think you have nothing to offer, but you do if Jesus is in your heart. And we're going to pray God would give you a vision for just one more person. Don't get all religious and busy and burned out. Just one. Okay? And I also want you to have a vision for what it's like and what the church can be about. If we really start to make room for one more, and the recognition that starting to make room for one more means making room for the people here to be embraced by Christ's grace. Because there are people this morning who fit the list that I just shared. And we must be a church that offers Jesus to one another, as well as our world. So we're going to watch this video just to remind us of the impact of life change that happens with the embrace of grace.
Going to church is common. Being the church is majestic. It's majestic. It starts with where we are now. If you're part of this church, find your place that you can hand out bulletins. You can be part of the welcome team, work in the parking lot, work in the nursery. Where... Find a place. It takes everybody. We continue to grow. We continue. We've grown by, we have 20% more children's workers than we did last year, and we still don't have enough children's workers for all the children that keep, you guys keep bringing, which is all good. We're glad of that, right? There's a bunch of little kids out there. There's so much to be done. Just engage. Have a heart understanding you're coming here to be a part of what we're doing here for those who have not yet received that embrace or need that or to help one another know who we are. But also, don't just do it here. That's too small a vision. That's, that's, if everybody takes their place here, nobody has to kill themselves to do what we're doing here. We do all our part together, so we have the energy, margins, and resources to be involved in our world with an open heart. Don't get church to death. We don't need that. I found this quote. When a man is all wrapped up in himself, he makes a pretty small package. So I thought I'd add my own. When a church is all wrapped up in itself, it makes a pretty large heresy. It's a big world out there. And all they need is just Jesus in you. Not more sermons. Not more big churches. Just need Jesus. We can use this to get to them. That's great. But ultimately, they need a relationship. Let's take a moment and pray and see if there's someone God wants to put on your heart. Lord, would you speak to our people now if there's someone in their lives, some place that they need to move or serve, not out of religious guilt, out of the motivation of the gospel of grace, out of the model of the life of Jesus, and by the means of your spirit bringing his presence and purpose in our lives. Someone who's hurting, someone who's scared, someone who's longing, someone who's ashamed. Just bring to their, each person's heart and mind that one more Just one more. Lord, if there's anyone who can't think of the one more, I pray you'll just stay after them and with them and love them and call them into this place. And if it's because they've lived their lives to avoid it, to avoid these people, these one more people, I help you help them understand there is no us in them. It's just us in need of a Savior. And draw them into those relationships. For those, Lord, right now who say, I am the one more help, I pray that we'll be able to put our arms around and love each person well to remind them that they're well loved by you. And may we be known as a church of a, of a passionate, open heart. In Jesus' name, amen. I got one more thing. Obviously, most of you, many of you watched the football game yesterday, right? Yeah, I know, I know. And I have no idea what it's like to be the coach or the players or the staff. I mean, I just, that's just emotionally, cannot imagine what they go through in that. But you know what struck me at the end of that game? And maybe it's because I live in Farragut and he's a local hero. But when, when they showed Nick Reves at the end of the game with his helmet off and cry, <clears throat> crying because he had done everything he knew, put his heart out in <clears throat> every way he could 
left everything on the field. I thought that's the way I want our community to look at our church. I don't care if we win or lose. I just want everybody to know we put Jesus' heart on the field. Left nothing, nothing short of that. And if a young man can care that much about a football game, surely to goodness we can care that much about the kingdom and more. Elders and spouses be available to pray with you. We would love to embrace you with God's grace through prayer in any area that you have need. And we pray you have grace and peace. We start back in Hebrews chapter 8 next week. Have a great week.